Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 158 being recorded on Monday, December 17th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, it's been like 10 days, but your life has changed a whole lot since we last talked. So you, you had a birthday. Happy belated birthday. Thank you much. It's depressing to type the even bigger number into the the elliptical machine at the gym when I on the infrequent occasions when I do use that. Yeah, you can. Uh, no one verifies, so go ahead and round down. Yeah, I don't want to. I'd only be cheating myself. And I feel like in my mind, I don't know if the math actually works out this way, but in my mind, I'm a year older, so it should be more impressed. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then you have an exciting new gig or title, uh, something like SVP of digital commerce, retail payments, and chief strategy officer. I think that's exactly my title. Uh, I've I've had to go to jumbo size business cards for the three people that still use business cards, or hand out three like a like a, a tweet storm. You can have a Seriously. business card storm. One of two of three of I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, a product idea. You are now the chief commerce strategy officer. Tell us uh, what's this entail and this is this uh, upwardly mobile thing. What's going on? Yeah, well, so I at the very least would like to think it's upwardly mobile. Uh, it remains to be seen whether others agree. But yeah, in a sense, uh, I, I you know for the last six years had been working for a, a particular agency that was originally Razorfish, and then you know we merged with Sapient and became Sapient Razorfish. Um, but that agency is part of a, a much bigger holding company called the Pubasis Group. And so, uh, essentially I took a new role at the group level. Um, so, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get to keep working with a lot of the, the colleagues and clients, uh, from, from Sapient Razorfish that I've always enjoyed, uh, but I'll have more responsibility and more opportunity to work with, uh, a broader selection of group clients across a bigger geography. And um, like most of these holding companies, we're a little more siloed than uh, we should be to, to best serve customers. And so a big part of my job is to kind of pull together all the, the capabilities within the group to better serve our commerce clients. And so um, that, that should be fun. And uh, as you may know, it was important that I – get that promotion on my birthday because when you have a birthday on LinkedIn, uh, you, you get a lot of well-intentioned well wishes. Yes. Uh, and annoyingly LinkedIn won't actually send you emails with your mail from LinkedIn. They'll just send you an email each time you get something saying, go to LinkedIn to read this one sentence canned message. Um, and so basically on your birthday, your email is, is, a uh, put under a denial of services attack by LinkedIn. And so that also happens when you change your, your job. And so I felt like smart to do both on the same day 
so that like my email would only be down for one day. Cool. So does this mean you're going to be like a bull in a China shop in there tearing down silos and making people work together? Is that how it's going to work? Uh, Hopefully it's a little more um, carrot than stick, uh, but uh, it wouldn't be the first time I was inadvertently a little overly aggressive. So uh, I, I shall endeavor to find the right balance. There are a ton of, of great capabilities and, and uh, groups in Publicis. And it's, it's, it, as far as I'm concerned, I went from the, the 32 pack of crayons to the 100 pack of crayons. And so, you know, uh, I, it's going to be fun to, to paint more colorful pictures. I know it's hard to put a number on it, but would you say over 80 to 90% of getting this new gig is related to the podcast? Should, should we thank listeners for their contribution here? I, I, possibly that's slightly conservative. <laughs> I mean, forget individual performance. I think the, the PR halo effect from yeah. this this kind of side endeavor that we have is, is probably responsible for most of your career trajectory here in the last at least, you know, 158 weeks. I feel like that's absolutely true. I feel like the listeners absolutely would have put me over the top, but you alone are so influential um, with all the, the leadership in Paris that I feel like just you putting in a good word um, was, was enough to drive the new promotion. So thanks very much to Scott and thanks very much to all the listeners for supporting me. Yeah, I said, you know, listen up, French dude. Jason needs promotion, and he doesn't need one of these like, you know, everyday C level gigs. He needs to be a double C level, and they came up with a new title, CCSO. Exactly, double C level. You're like C squared level. <laughs> See, I like that C squared SO. I'm, that maybe is the because uh, I'm more sort of exponential growth than I am linear growth. I like or I like that a lot. Yeah, you're like, "Eh, I didn't go to the C-level meeting because I'm C-squared level. Exactly. I I feel like the one negative ramification is we are now going to have to do a deep dive on the Peter principle. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, you hit the ground running, and you have been in New York. I've been watching your tweets. Uh, My favorite is your cover girl tweet. That was was, uh, a little surprising and shocking to see you on the cover of CoverGirl. So congratulations on that. Yeah, uh, I feel like that would be more than uh, any uh, person needs to be thinking about. But then I got in a Twitter conversation today with with uh, some of our, our favorite journalists talking about the latest trends in women's fashion. And uh, now they're all super excited about uh, seeing me wear like uh, flared denim at inter- uh, uh, cropped flared denim at NRF this year. So so sorry for all the Twitter followers that had to read that. I yeah, that's going to be good. There will be pictures. I will take them and post them. Yeah, uh, but in all seriousness, this is sort of a annual tradition that I have around my birthday. Is I pick a city that has a bunch of retail going on, and I like to do a bunch of store visits around the holidays. Uh, as as people will know or might imagine, um, there's a lot of uh, in addition to sort of all the evergreen retail. There's a lot of pop ups that that. Uh, brands open around the holidays and if you're a retailer and you're going to launch a big new flagship it wouldn't be uncommon that you try to get it launched uh, in time for holiday and so usually it's a good time of year to see some new new retail concepts or at least see the evolution of some some retail concepts so this year I went to New York City for a couple days um, and I walked about 14 miles and visited 33 stores 
cool. Give us the give us the highs, the lows, the the good, the bad, the ugly. How whatever kind of format you want to do. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned thirty three stores. There were eleven that really um, jumped out at me as as uh, relevant and interesting for for one reason or another. There there were kind of four that I. Um, I'm putting in the doghouse that were disappointing for one reason or another. And then, you know, the rest I, I kind of characterize as middle of the road. Um, the reason I picked New York this year specifically was because Nike had just opened a new store on Fifth Avenue, a flagship store called House of Innovation 001. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of buzz in our industry that this was a super progressive, omni-channel, digital-first retail store. And so I had read a lot about it, and I wanted to make sure I had a good good first-hand experience. So that was kind of the anchor that pulled me to New York, and then I, I put together a list. Um, if anyone is super masochistic, um, what I tend to do is put all these things in uh, – in Google Maps, which a uh, little known feature, but Google Maps is great for custom maps. Um, and it works on all the, the apps on all the different mobile platforms. So I can actually put a link in the show notes to my Google Map. And you can you can see where all these stores are if you happen to be visiting New York and want to want to check any of them out. Um, but so jumping into that Nike store, I felt like it really lived up to the hype. Um, so this is a a big store on Fifth Avenue, uh, you know, some of the most expensive real estate in uh, North America. Uh, it's a six-story store. And some of the marquee experiences they talked about are these kind of blend of digital and experiential. Um, so, uh, for example, they have a great reserve online try-in-store experience. You can... Uh, if you live in New York, you can uh, shop on the mobile phone, uh, find some shoes in a size you want to try on, um, and someone will pull those shoes and put them in a locker um, waiting for you. And so when you get to the store, you can use the mobile app to unlock the locker, try on the shoes. If you decide you want to buy them, uh, you can do a self-checkout on the mobile app. And so essentially you can like get stuff staged in a dressing room, try it on uh, and buy it without ever having to have any uh, interaction with an employee if you don't feel like you need an employee. Um, and so to me, that was a like an in, in interesting uh, sort of improvement in the frictionless um, reserve online try and store experience. Another uh, marquee experience they had is uh, this mannequin shopping. So, you know, as, as a lot of folks might know, um, Apparel that you put on mannequins tends to sell dramatically better than the apparel that's just on the racks or on the shelf. Um, but it often can be tricky to shop the outfit on a mannequin because you see something on a mannequin and you uh, you don't necessarily know what model that is or where you can go get that particular apparel. And you know, one thing the store can do is they can put the exact apparel on the mannequin on a on an end cap or a display right next to the mannequin. But then that creates all kinds of problems for the store where the inventory is fragmented. Some of it's out on that custom display and some of it's in line in the rack. And when someone does a BOPUS order or something else, now they can't find the apparel because it's floating all over the store. And so what Nike did is they actually put a QR code on every mannequin. And you can scan those QR codes with the Nike app uh, and it opens up uh, a, a digital experience with all the the apparel that's dressed on that mannequin. And again, 
You can click on any of those things to have them sent to a dressing room in your size. Uh, you can self-check out or, you know, get help from a sales associate. But it, it was kind of a cool digital way to shop the look um, on mannequins in the store. Uh, oh, the um, I've seen some of the shoe stores are now doing some of the 3D printing where, where they'll you can't just do it right there because it takes a while, but you can go in and get measured and get printed. Is is that Nike store doing that or is that a separate experience? Yeah, no, no, no. Nike is all in on customized and custom products. Um, so uh, they Nike actually has a, a big flagship store in Tribeca. The, the bottom floor is totally dedicated to customization and it's both custom shoes and custom jerseys. So like around the World Cup, um, like embroidering your name on a, on your team's jersey and stuff like that in real time was huge. Um, and this, uh, house of innovation takes that even a step further, uh, in this store, you actually can have your, uh, your shoe models custom inked, um, and you literally wait for the ink to dry and then they give you the, the completely custom product in the store. So the ground floor of the store is totally dedicated to custom, um, they have all these kind of experiential components to the floor where you can see like the embroidery shop, they have all the people like sewing on the machines and you can watch them making the custom products. They have the dye shop and you can, you know, these, you can look through the glass walls and watch all the people handcrafting, uh, your custom products. And they have a bunch of digital stations where you can work with a sales associate and design your own shoe from scratch, or you can pick a custom designed shoe that was designed by an influencer that you're aligned with. So that could be a celebrity or it could be, uh, you know, some, some talented independent designer that Nike had partnered with. So if you don't want to just pick a random design from scratch, um, you can, you can, uh, rely on the talent of someone else to still make a shoe that's kind of unique and that everyone doesn't have and that isn't available at Foot Locker. Very cool. Yeah, so they're definitely in on custom. Uh, they also, uh, another store we've talked about with Nike is uh, this uh, Nike at Melrose, which is in Los Angeles. And its big spin is it's localized. So they pay close attention to what people shop for in that store and change the assortment really rapidly in response to the the Nike shoppers in, in Los Angeles. And so the bottom floor, uh, uh, which is a sub-basement floor in this this store is called Nike Speed Shop, and it essentially is dedicated to the best-selling products in New York City. Um, and uh, again, you you walk down, you see like a you know fastest-selling items wall that changes um, you know quite frequently depending on what the popular items are, and you you can scan a QR code and have any of those items popped into a, a self-service locker for you. So again, they're they're kind of leveraging the the crowd curation and the, the, the seamless um, self-service experience. Uh, you can self-check out for anything in the store. So you don't, you don't have to get in line at a particular cashier. They have self-checkout stations throughout the store where you can like get bags and things like that. Um, the, so overall I would say like this store does a better job of seamlessly integrating digital in a physical environment than almost any other store I've been in. And it's pretty exciting for that. Um, the downside is most of these experiences are not ones that shoppers are already used to. And so the sales associates are having to do a heck of a lot of education to teach people how to use all these amenities in the store. And it's it's kind of akin to when banks first started rolling out ATM machines, um, you know, they had to 
staff the self-service ATM machines with a lot of staff to teach people how to use them or, you know, when the airlines used to have to teach people how to use um, the the digital boarding passes, um, you know, the hope is over time everyone learns how to shop that store and use those amenities and they can cut back on on the amount of staff that they need to train customers. But then on the flip side, Fifth Avenue is like one of the, the highest um, uh, tourist traffic uh, shopping uh, areas in the United States. And so, you know, the frequency of visit is probably a lot lower. It's probably, you know, the one and only time a bunch of these people are going to shop that store. So I think the the education thing could be an ongoing challenge. And one sort of pet peeve or suggestion I would have for Nike is the the all of these digital experiences are totally dependent on you having the Nike app, which I I hate having that app dependency because it's really hard to get users to download the app and to help users get their password and uh, to get users to consistently use the app. Um, and, you know, these days with progressive web apps, we could have all the same experience on a web experience. Um, all these QR codes that are all over the store, uh, the the Apple phones now natively scan QR phones in the app, in the, the camera app. So, you know, we you could have given the customer 90% of the same functionality with an iPhone with no app in it. And Nike intentionally chose not to do that. So when you scan any of those QR codes that work in the Nike app with the, the iPhone camera, for example, uh, instead of giving you the, the digital experience, it takes you to the iTunes store and tries to get you to download the, the Nike app. So, you know, they're, they're, I, I can understand their goal to try to get good penetration of the app, but I'd rather see them, uh, give give a more seamless experience to the customers. Yeah, because the apps are pretty beefy, and you know you're in the store on cell, and in store Wi Fi never really works. It's always got you know it's kind of glitchy, and you have to opt into it, and it just kind of creates a lot of friction. I think. Yeah, no, and it uh, you know again, there's stores that are worse, like the Amazon Go stores, but you'll see a huge queue outside these stores that require an app to shop them. Um, and you know, they, they call them frictionless stores cause it's just walkout technology. And the irony is they've just moved the friction from the, the cashier to the front door of the store. Yeah, it is one time though, which is good. Yeah, no, totally true. Yeah. So I, I mean, I overall super favorable impression on the Nike store. I'll, I'll be excited to watch it continue to evolve. Um, as always anything new, it's pretty easy to find, a a few refinements and, and, you know, hopefully, uh, Nike will explore those over time. Uh, if you go to that Nike store, literally right next door to that Nike store is a Dyson factory store. Um, and I hadn't seen this store talked about very much, but this to me is a great store um, in terms of experiential retail. So, like, obviously Dyson is super premium product. Like, they you know, tend to be at, at very premium price points uh, to their competitors in the marketplace. And so it requires um, – it's a very considered sale. It requires a lot of explanation and demonstration about why the products are better. And so this Dyson store does a, a really good job of immersing you in all their products. Um, they show you exploded, you know, versions of all their products so you can see the inside and you can see all the craftsmanship and design in the products and why it's better and more expensive. And then they do all kinds of clever things to let you experience the product. So they have the world's most expensive hair dryer, as far as I know. And so in the back of the store, 
They have a, a blow bar where, you know, if you're, uh, you want, you can go in and have your hair styled and they'll blow it out and dry it using that Dyson product. And so, you know, you get this kind of great story that you, you went, uh, shopping on your vacation on, on Fifth Avenue and you got your hair done at Dyson and you got to experience this, this one of a kind, um, hair dryer and, and hopefully it sold you the hair dryer. If you want to buy a vacuum, uh, they they next to all the vacuum displays they have like a complete assortment of um floor treatment so they have carpet and tile and hardwood and they have a funny wall of different dirts that you can pick so you can you can like literally grab a beaker of dirt or a beaker of confetti or rubber balls or whatever you want to test and throw it on whatever kind of floor surfaces you want and and literally vacuum up those those products. And so I just, to me, it's a great example of experiential retail and really um, helping uh, customers understand the value proposition and kicking in this, this uh, psychology we call the endowment effect, where you feel like you already own the product in the store and, and you feel like you'd have uh, a remorse if you walked to home, walked out of the store without taking the product. Cool. Did you uh, take advantage of the dry bar, the blow dry bar? Uh, I did not. Uh, I do like sometimes it's funny. I try to go in and uh, test products that are maybe not not targeted at me, but I did not have time to get my my thinning, uh, you know, three centimeter hair. Um, can, and I kind of think it would have dried in the time it took for my hair to get off the basin to the chair. So maybe wouldn't have worked anyway. But <laughs> Yeah, that uh, I think they're sold out of that hair dryer though. I mean, it is very expensive, but it's quite popular. It's kind of the the yeah. bee's knees. Yeah, I I actually am thinking about getting hair extensions just so I'll have a reason to get one of those hair dryers. Oh, I think you should definitely do that before uh, the NRF big show, so we can all all see you with your. Uh, I think I'm imagining a mullet kind yeah. of look. Yeah, not that hard to imagine. There's probably some yearbook somewhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not not true. Um, so uh hit a couple other stores on Fifth Avenue that maybe we'll talk about later, but then I shot down to Soho and Tribeca. Um and uh Allbirds has had a pop-up uh there for a while that like frankly was not a very interesting store. Um and they just opened their first um permanent store and I think they also did a terrific job. Like Allbirds, of course, is a a um a, a shoe brand that's that's doing particularly well but very similar to Dyson uh they did a beautiful job like all the visual merchandising in this store is great um but they really did this rich storytelling about all of the materials that are used in all the Allbird products and they really kind of immersed you in the lore of the products um and just you know much more so than like walking into a Foot Locker and seeing a wall of sneakers you feel like you get an origin story for every material that then is used in every shoe, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, they just made the product feel really aspirational and um, they, they try to use sustainable products in the shoe and they like, you know, really made you believe in the purpose. And I just thought it was really a well designed store from a visual merchandising standpoint. Like they, they, they're not relying on a lot of digital technology in that store, but I felt like, um, that store combined with some of the other stores that I visited that are kind of newer, um, I'll call them digitally native brands, although that's debatable in the case of all birds or Dyson, you know, I really felt like 
like some of the best retail we're seeing right now is from these new emerging brands. Um, and, and Allbirds was another good example and a huge progression from their prop up to this permanent store. So definitely congratulations to them on that. They, um, they do a lot of really cool kind of seasonal exclusives and city exclusives. Like, uh, I think I got, I think I got mine in New York and they had a color called starry night, which is kind of like a cool, you know? Yeah. And exclusives that, that are, the trigger scarcity is a huge play across a bunch of these brands and a bunch of these products and really, really smart. You know, again, um, in a world when you're a teenager that has to look cool amongst your thousand followers on Instagram, um, you know, getting the same product that's available in every mall in America, you know, does not fly very well. But being able to get, you know, something that's exclusive or scarce, um, you know, does super well. And we're, we're seeing that in, you know, all of these these, uh, you know, unique uh, limited edition shoes from Adidas and Supreme and G-Star and Allbirds and um, all, all of those brands. You're seeing them in the super young kids toys, all the laugh out loud surprise toys. Uh, I know you buy a bunch of these uh, Star Trek kind of surprise toy or Star Wars. Excuse me. That was a oh. horrible Freudian slip. Um, not Freudian, but a horrible slip. Uh, the... <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. It, maybe it's Freudian in some super weird, creepy way that we don't want to get into. Um, Involving Klingons. Yeah. But uh, yeah, scarcity, I think, is super smart. Um, are you are you a big Allbirds guy? Not big. I have one pair. Okay. Um, but, you know, I like them. Yeah. No. Um, and that store is now like literally across the street from the Amazon four star store. We we've talked about that store a lot in the past. I did go back to that store. I was interested to see how it had evolved since I was there on the grand opening. Um, and obviously that's a store that's in, uh, allegedly completely curated by customers. And so I walked in there, you know, very curious to see how much of the assortment had really changed since the last time I was in. And I was pleasantly surprised that um, a lot of it had changed. Like all the featured displays that you see when you you, you walk in the front of the store were prominently featuring different merchandise than they were at the grand opening. Um, and even a lot of the product categories um, in the store had changed or evolved. And so, you know, my, my early indications are, you know, props to, to Amazon for living their promise on, on sort of um, uh, frequently and rapidly changing the mix in that store based on, on customer curation. I wonder if they do it. I wonder if they just kind of like, close down and reshuffle for a day or if they're just kind of like nibble away at it kind of like you know two percent a day no it's a great question and i i don't know the answer um but uh yeah i would have to live there or visit a lot more frequently to notice that but i did i took a ton of pictures the first time i was there and i retook all those pictures and so i'm i'm uh probably going to do a deeper dive in comparing the two sets of pictures uh but anecdotally it definitely felt like a lot of stuff had churned and obviously we're much closer to holiday now and there are all these like seasonal products for holiday that are selling really well. So not surprisingly, those products all moved forward. Um, you know, secretly, I feel like that store is first and foremost designed to sell Amazon branded products. And those are kind of the evergreen products that did not change, uh, comma, there's some new products since the last time I was there. So the, the I, first time I got to see the microwave in person, um, I feel, Ooh, how'd you like it? Uh, I was actually surprised it's smaller than I was anticipating. It does not feel like, like I feel like that was a lower capacity microwave than, than I have. So, uh, mm -hmm. I would have been a little scared to, 
Did you uh, talk at it? Did you have Alexa make you some popcorn? I did not. I was uh, pleased to see that it was plugged in, so you could, in fact, talk to it. But you like they did not give you product and give you a chance to actually cook anything in it. Uh, and I'm curious if the demo unit even had. Hopefully, it did not have the microwave <laughs> uh, element in it. But who knows? Um, yeah, uh, this is a little bit off topic, but um, you know, the switching of the store made me think of everyone's uh, in retail's favorite store in New York. Story, did you get to swing by there? I did not swing by Story. Um, I, I always love to go to this story, but uh, it just wasn't geographically convenient with all these other stores. Uh, I did go to Macy's. Uh, Macy's is now a minority owner of Story, and I was curious to see if they had a This Is Story iteration in Macy's. And if they did, I was not able to find it. Um, but their uh, beta, who's been on the store, has has uh, shop in shops inside of Macy's. And I went to that Macy's expecting that I'd go down to the basement where where they historically have put a lot of these concepts. And I was actually pleasantly surprised. The beta store um, is like prominently featured at the front door in like one of the highest traffic entrances. And so, kind of smart around the holidays, since a lot of the beta product is is very holiday gift friendly items. Um, but that all of the, the pods in the, the beta display inside the Macy's were really hopping. And it felt like, um, the exact same experience you'd get if you walked into a dedicated, uh, beta store. Um, and then the, Oh, cool. The, um, uh, one of our interns just handed me a note to make sure we reference episode 139 when we had beta founder Vabu on, uh, telling us all about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you do remember that episode or you re-listen, um, he'll tell you a story about how he called me early on in the evolution of that concept and I gave him some stupid advice um, is his version. And my version is I told him that in the long run um, that he would be funded by a bunch of retailers and he would be shopping shops inside of a bunch of these stores. And, you know, side note, almost all the betas are now in Macy's and Lowe's. So I, I'm saying I'm right He's saying I gave him bad advice. Yeah. You can judge for yourself. <laughs> he is not a C squared executive, though. He's a CEO. He He's just has the one one C and like yeah, risk a bunch you're of on capital. Another, and, like, you're in another orbit, like kind of. Yeah, he would tell you this lame story about how he left his cushy job at Google to take this big entrepreneurial risk and worked really hard to build something and all that. But you know, as opposed to just like telling other people what to do and then running before they actually do it, but. <laughs> Yeah, huh. he only has one C. That's, yeah. that's all you have to say. Drop potato. the mic. Potato, potato. Exactly. Um, the <laughs> uh, Also sort of in that that area, um, I visited the Casper store. You know, again, um, another great kind of showroomy store that has a bunch of experiential components. Like uh, they have all these, these um, house vignettes where you can, in fact uh, – close the door and sleep on all these various mattresses. Um, but somewhat smart, they even have, they, they actually have, and they have a cool branded term for it that I'm going to not remember, unfortunately. Um, but the back of the store is, is actually dedicated to a service where you essentially can rent a, an isolation pod with a bed in it and take a nap. Um, and they, they've done like a really good job of creating this like super relaxing atmosphere and, you know, in a, uh, the hustle and bustle of a, a busy city, you can kind of take a time out and uh, catch a power nap and, and kind of recharge. Um, 
I looked at that thing and said, man, like these guys ought to be partnering with WeWork. Like you ought to have one of these nap stations and all the, the work on demand spaces. Yeah, that's a good idea. And Casper, I think people are always surprised how many SKUs they have. I think everyone kind of associates them with kind of, you know, essentially one SKU, a mattress. Um, they've really expanded the the offerings. They've got some pet stuff now, right? And they've got pillows and uh, I think they're even into you know, sheets and soft yeah, goods as yeah, well. Yeah, bedding. And so they, they have all that. But also I thought where you're going is they have a variety of different uh, uh, material treatments on the mattresses. So there is a pretty good diversity of mattresses you can buy at different price points. And so you can imagine people wanting to um, to actually try those out. And, you know, I think they talk a lot about how, you know, retail and trying is an important part of their their growth strategy that, that, you know, they like the pure digital experience and obviously their kind of original innovation was the ability to make a UPS shippable mattress and bypass the store. But in the long run, like, you know, the total addressable market of people that are willing to buy a mattress uh, site unseen is much smaller than the, you know, all the households in the U S and so, you know, these retail showrooms have been become a big part of their growth strategy uh, I can't remember if I threw it up on social media or not, but they also have kind of a a um, social photo booth in the store, and uh, so I took a picture in the Casper store. And to me, the um, the these these Instagrammable scenes inside of retail stores is another strong retail trend. Like we've talked on the show a little bit in the past, there are these dedicated concepts to. Instagrammable moments like the ice cream factory in in San Francisco, and the idea here is you you pay a significant amount of money, twenty to forty bucks, to go into what amounts to a bunch of like unique photo sets to take your your selfies in all these you know unique and interesting ways. And there's scarcity because that museum goes away after a couple of months, and it creates a cool sort of uh, photo that you can share on on Instagram. And a bunch of retailers have jumped in on this action. And so the the Casper store was one. Uh, you mentioned earlier that CoverGirl had a pop-up in Times Square. Um, and they had a, a great social photo booth. So you, you got to both take a, a glamour still and a, an MPEG video in the store. And uh, uh, so I used that, that glamour photo booth and put my CoverGirl picture up. Um, it's super smart because they capture your email address, uh, which you give them in order for them to send you the photos and you, you share those photos on your social channels and amplify it and become an influencer for Casper or cover girl, um, or a bunch of the other retail brands. So I feel like that was a common trend. Um, also, uh, up, uh, near fifth Avenue at Rockefeller center, um, of course, FAO Schwartz reopened, um, so that, you know, they were a long time icon on fifth Avenue, uh, their space is now being, uh, used for Apple. Um, they, they went out of business, but a new company bought the brand and they reopened a toy store in what used to be the NBC experience store in Rockefeller center. Um, yeah. And uh, does it would have the uh, FEO clock and like that same kind of vibe that the old one did. Yeah, it totally does. It has all the iconic displays that the old store has. It has uh, the, you know, costume toy soldiers dancing outside the store and taking selfies with everyone. And again, another one of these Instagrammable moments. Um, and, you know, around holiday in Rockefeller Center, um, 
this was the busiest store in the area and had a huge line to get into the store. And so again, like, you know, creating scarcity just by, you know, you go to Rockefeller Center to check out what's going on and look at the ice rink and see the Christmas tree and blam, there's a huge line of people waiting to get in somewhere and it instantly makes you want to get in there too. And it, it, it uh, you know, uh, it seems like uh, there's definite evidence that 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 brand still carries some weight with consumers and uh, at least around holiday um, uh, seems like it was doing terrific. Did a uh, baby geek uh, get like a drivable little Rolls Royce or anything? Uh, he did not. I have, uh, as I think documented on some of these other shows, uh, already made the mistake of buying him some drivable vehicles, like only to, to get home and come to my senses and realize that I'm now paying for a separate uh, city parking space for my son's truck. My three-year-old son's yeah. truck. Yeah, so well, he does probably not... fit five of them in one city parking space. Yeah, so. that's true. I probably could fit more, but we don't need to tell him that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Glossier is another great um, digital brand that's doing really well in the beauty and cosmetic space, and they opened a store in Tribeca. Um, again, uh, th- these guys do a lot of custom assortments, um, and so the whole store is really a showroom, um, and you shop the store, you 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 know, try cosmetics, you pick stuff that you want, and then you go to a will call window and actually pick up your custom curated bag with your name on it of your cosmetics. You can do that online and they have a, a, a pickup station at the very front of the store for, for online orders or, or, you know, they have an in-store pickup station for folks that have shopped the in-store experience. And this store was hopping. Like there was a line uh, at almost every display for people to check out, um, and again, a big chunk of the store was dedicated to uh, both them like doing your makeup and glamming you up and taking an Instagram photo in, you know, a bunch of staged uh, sets that they had. And so you kind of share and amplify the experience. So another uh, good example of that. Um, Google has a pop up store in Chicago and New York called Google Hardware. Uh, I visited the one in, in Chicago earlier and talked a little bit about it on the show. The New York one is sort of a bigger, better laid out version of the exact same store. Uh, again, a, a, a great place to experience a lot of the Google hardware and get, you know, live demos and some real world vignettes. Um, but the whole, you know, downstairs of this store, again, is dedicated to taking cool photos of you in a unique environment and sharing those on all your social platforms with all your friends. And so for Google, it's a double win there. They're getting you to take advantage of this social photo uh, booth experience. They're capturing your email, all the same things as all the other retailers. But they're also getting to demonstrate some of the unique features of the Google Pixel camera. And it has this feature called Best Shot. So essentially, they put you on this like cool interactive swing set and take a bunch of pictures of you. And the AI in uh, the Google uh, 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 phone app looks at all the photos they took of you and picks the two or three best photos and shows you those. So uh, kind of a, a double win there. Would you um, agree with the ones it picked? Yeah. I, it seems that it's optimized for obvious things. So, you know, uh, it picks the ones where you're smiling and looking directly at the camera and that are in good focus. Um, I'm, I, I don't know that I took enough pictures to to pick up beyond that what its its criteria were, but definitely the the photos it recommended were keepers. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a cool, well-designed kind of theatrical set. Like it's in their case, it's funny cause you walk up and it, it looks like a really bland background with a bunch of wood paneling 
and uh, swing and you sit on the swing and you're like, oh, this doesn't seem like all that interesting of a of a background. Um, but then the guy triggers the display. And as the swing starts moving, all of the wood panels drop down and there are all these colorful animated things moving around and it becomes a fun, fun set for a photo. So it was just fun to watch the surprise and delight moment when when that happened to other people as well. Um, and then the 11th of my my favorite retail stores uh, is a new store um, in uh, kind of the, the upper end of Tribeca called Showfields. Um, and to me, this is a similar concept to Beta. So this is a, a marketplace store. It's a permanent store uh, that uh, emerging brands can rent a pod in. Um, all of the pods have uh, uh, facilities for live demonstrations. They all have digital signage. Um, and so you, you got a bunch of like digitally native products, um, you know, that each had their own kind of uh, shop and shop inside of this Showfield space. Um, and I guess the one thing that was different about Showfields from Beta is the beta store was staffed by beta employees and all the displays were largely self-service except for the beta employees. Most of the show field vignettes were actually staffed with branded employees. So when you went to each vignette, you were likely to get a, a, uh, a representative from the brand that was in that vignette talking to you. Um, yeah. So it seems like the, the marketplace ification of physical retail, uh, is continuing to happen. So Scott, uh, you may have been right that marketplaces are a thing. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're catching on. Yep. Uh, so we're super deep into the show. Probably took more time than we intended on the store visits. Uh, super quick Four that were a little bit of a letdown for me. Uh, Restoration hardware has this great reputation. They moved their store to the meatpacking district. Um, this is their flagship store in New York. Uh, went to the store. It's a beautiful piece of visual merchandising. It has tons of their product in it. Um, but I just really think that it's a hard store to shop. There's no wayfinding. Uh, there's no way to know what inventory is in the store. A critique that a lot of folks have of Restoration Hardware is, you know, you want to try this furniture before you buy it. Uh, they have a website with all these different permeations of all their products. Uh, but nowhere on their website can you find out which store has the products you want to try. And you just kind of have to pop into the store and you're going to see one sofa that represents a family of 10 and not get a very good story about the other nine. So I just, I feel like it was a lost opportunity for restoration hardware to take their retailing a little further than they had in the past. And it seems like they stuck with beautiful visual merchandising and architecture, um, but not really anything new or interesting in customer experience. So that was a disappointment to me. Um, on fifth Avenue, there's a, uh, the original Saks fifth Avenue, uh, they made a bunch of hay earlier this year about doing a huge remodel to their beauty department, which is the second floor of the store. Uh, you walk in the store on the ground floor and there are all these signs saying, check out beauty 2.0 on the second floor. And they really hype up this beauty 2.0 concept. Um, and so it, you know, it frankly raises your expectation that they are, uh, inventing a better way to shop for cosmetics and beauty. Um, and, you know, when I got up the, there and shopped it, it felt like a very traditional department store beauty experience to me. Like the, the again, the fixtures and the visual merchandising might have been a little nicer, but, you know, you look at like a, all the experiential stuff going on in a Sephora or an Ulta or the ability to shop based on a, a use case or a need instead of exclusively by brand, 
you know, there are all these opportunities to kind of reinvent beauty. And to me, like Sachs raised the expectation by calling it beauty 2.0. And it, it, to me, it was beauty 1.1, maybe. Um, I hit up about four Apple stores in New York City. Uh, and, you know, I continue to have this this impression when I walk in Apple stores that they have become, to me, super boring. And the the problem, I think, is that they've curated down, they've dramatically diminished the amount of third-party product that they offer in an Apple store. And so, you know, it's almost all first-party product. Um, the, you know, most of us know all of Apple's product before we walk in the store, so we're not going to see some new Apple-branded product that's cool or that we want to see except maybe once a year. Um and, you know, the, the store is always super busy, but it's also always super busy because there's a bunch of people in line at the Genius Bar to get help uh, getting their iTunes password so they can download the Nike app or the Amazon Go app. Um, it That store has really become a customer service store, and there just really isn't a lot of serendipitous discovery or surprise and delight. Like, I, you know, I just don't feel like I have a reason to go there and find anything that's going to be exciting for me. I don't know, Scott, do you still go to an Apple store when you're in a... A new shopping district. But Jason, it's a town hall. Don't you just go there to meet people? <laughs> no, I, I agree. I I used to I used to get the most joy out of kind of, you know, looking at they had a kind of robust drone section and all these wacky accessories like a golf club thing you could play with. And as they've as they've taken that stuff away, um, I do think it's diminished it. And I think part of it is once they got into the headphones with Beats, that took a big section out. Yeah, they kicked all the third-party headphones out, and yeah, yeah. So, so it is a bit of a bummer because, uh, like you, I think I pretty much have every product covered. So there's no new Apple product I really need to discover. Yeah, no, same same deal. So if I forget to pack a power supply, I might pop pop in the Apple to get a replacement. But but uh, you know if they uh, I. I miss the surprise and delight moments. I hope I hope they find a new way to bring those back. And then last door, and this is sadly for me because I really wanted to be excited. My Raspberry Award is going to a digital native brand uh, that folks on the show are probably familiar with called The Way, which is a kind of a great digital suitcase that's doing really well. And the reason I'm disappointed is I had visited their pop-up store and thought it was fabulous, right? So... You listen to the founders talk about the Away brand, and they say, like, hey, we recognized early on we didn't want to be about selling suitcases. We wanted to be around selling aspirational experiences and destinations. And so you went to the pop-up store, and it was merchandise to be all these exotic locations that you wanted to go to. And it just so happens that there was luggage in each one of those locations that you could check out. And it made you want to buy the luggage so that you could go to, to – um, uh, Milan and, and, uh, you know, have the experience. Um, and I, I thought that was really smart and it, it, you know, the, in, in all their presentations at shop talk and, and, uh, shop.org and places like that, you know, they told the story that really kind of matched the retail environment. So now they've opened a permanent store and I, and you go, man, I like the pop-up. I'm expecting, you know, some big stuff out of the permanent store. And I feel like the permanent away store took a giant step back and it's a bunch of shelves with suitcases and no storytelling and and none of that destination merchandising or aspiration. Like it, it did have kind of a a like unremarkable cafe inside the store, but mostly it was, you know, it, it felt just like your typical mall luggage store that just happened to have a bunch of away suitcases on it. 
<laughs> I am a proud owner of a way. I love my suitcase. Do you get yelled at every time you get on the plane that you have to take the battery out? Uh, no, it pops. I got the later generation that where it just pops right out. Yeah. So uh, I think that's most of the products, but there, there is this slight, slightly unfortunate thing that uh, one of their marquee features is they have a smart suitcase that has a, a big battery in it that you can use to charge a lot of your gadgets. And, you know, there must have been some bad experience on the airline somewhere because, like, it's now built into the FAA announcements on a lot of planes that if you have an Away-branded suitcase, you must take the battery out before you come on the plane. Um, and again, Away has designed the suitcase to allow that, so it's not a big deal. But in my mind, from a brand erosion standpoint, it's, I don't know, maybe favorable, maybe negative that every single time you get on a plane, they make an announcement saying, like, you have to do something with an Away suitcase or you're not safe. Maybe it helps that they're reminding everyone that there's this new cool suitcase called Away. Yeah, it's not nearly as bad as when they said if you had a uh, a Samsung Note, they would just like grab it and throw it off the plane. <laughs> exactly. And so then I guess the last takeaway, so a bunch of great retail. I do feel like a bunch of the new emerging brands are are the ones that are really moving the ball forward. And a lot of the the sort of uh, uh, longtime retail brands, I feel like I'm seeing less innovation out of them. Even Nike, you know, in, I mean, arguably they've been in retail since 1990, but as a major retailer, um, like they're moving the ball forward and, and, uh, you know, the Saks Fifth Avenues of the world, not as much. Um, the one other kind of anecdotal takeaway, I have talked a bunch of times on the show about electronic shelf labels. And, you know, I would point out of the 33 stores I visited, four of them now I have a hundred percent electronic shelf labels. So, um, you know, potentially we're starting to see the, the slow evolution to this more, um, real-time, updatable, dynamic pricing uh, retail environment. So I, I hope we see more of that. Cool. Well, uh, we this is going to be the last show of the year, so we want to give you guys kind of the double bang for your bucks. So in addition to Jason's detailed trip report, we're going to do kind of a quick 10-minute news run. And it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without... Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Cool. So briefly, the big news for Amazon uh, right now, here we are in the, the, the heat of peak delivery time, is not surprisingly delivery oriented. So there's been a bunch out around delivery. Um, I've been seeing a lot of interesting stuff on Amazon. Jason, I'm a frequent Amazon order this time of year. I'm a procrastinator and um, it's really interesting. They're, they're kind of, they're, my prime orders are defaulted to two day, but they're actually putting a message in there that says, choose one day and you'll get your item tomorrow. Um, and it's really, it's a really weird user experience. Like why, why are they making me choose it? There's no extra cost. Um, I did notice today I did an order and it did that uh, and I chose it. And then it did this interesting math over on the side where it said your shipping charge is $20 and then it minus out the shipping charge almost to make me feel like, you know, I was getting $20, $20 worth of value. It felt like some kind of an AB test um, there. Um, but that's just been, been, pretty unusual. And here in, I think in Chicago, you've probably always had kind of same day delivery and, and next day. Um, but that's pretty rare in North Carolina. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely seeing that they're using language like, um, 
using our express shipping partners and stuff like that. So, and around this area, I'm seeing a lot of the prime vehicles uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So, so that's just been pretty interesting as a user. Um, the Bloomberg had a, uh, our friend Spencer uh, Soper over there. Uh, he had a great piece out today about the Amazon delivery network. Uh, and you'll, you'll notice these, there's these brown um, delivery vans uh, and, and uh, I, I've become very intimately familiar with these various truck platforms. Uh, probably the most famous and well-loved truck platform is from Europe and it's the Mercedes Sprinter. Uh, and so Amazon in September, a news article came out that they had ordered 10,000 of these, or excuse me, 20,000 of these Sprinters. And what they've done very rapidly is uh, no one knows how many they have out in the field, but it feels like a lot of them. They have set up people in their own businesses, these 1099 businesses, uh, and they will guarantee you a route. They'll rent the truck to you very very inexpensively. Um, and this article had some really interesting case studies. They, they profiled someone um, that had uh, 42 vans, 70 drivers, and they were doing 250 deliveries per day per driver uh, and making a thousand dollars a month per van uh, in profit. So, um, so it's a really good article. If you're interested in that kind of thing, we'll put it in the show notes. And I, I definitely recommend you read that. Uh, and then you saw one too, Jason. Yeah. So side note, uh, there's a slight irony to me. Um, the same time you're seeing all of these Amazon branded Sprinter vehicles showing up, uh, it's also the time of year when uh, UPS and FedEx don't have enough trucks. And so you start seeing a lot of enterprise rental vans um, with with UPS drivers getting out of them. And of course, there's always the problem of people thinking they're not not legitimate UPS drivers when they roll up in the in the unmarked white van. Um, so feels like people going in different directions. Uh, there is, uh, an interesting thing that Amazon did this year. Uh, you know, there's always this battle for free shipping amongst retailers and who's going to lower their, their threshold for free shipping and who they're going to charge. And so, you know, uh, Walmart does free two day shipping for, uh, any order over $35, uh, target came out for holiday and said, Hey, free shipping on anything. And, you know, it's always curious. Target made this better shipping offer than Walmart. Would Walmart match them? And Walmart didn't. Um, and I, I kind of thought that was interesting and that would be the end of it. But then uh, Amazon surprised us all by coming out with a new offer for this holiday that they were offering free shipping um, for the holiday, even without a Prime membership. And this this is not their two-day shipping, but that it was interesting that Amazon was getting more promotional around holiday. And we've all been watching to see if that might force Walmart to to react so far we haven't seen that um but now they're extending this free shipping and they're starting to really promote their their cutoff date so you know i think tomorrow's the last day to get free slow shipping from amazon um but as you pointed out they beefed up their their same day delivery options in a bunch of markets and so you'll be able to continue to christmas shop up to the 24th in a lot of markets and still get them uh as you mentioned chicago was one of the first um, so I, for a long time, have had this experience where uh, you order something that's available with one day delivery and then in the cart, it defaults to two day delivery and it goes, you can get it's Tuesday, you can get this on Thursday for free or you can click this to get it Wednesday for free um, because even though it says same day, it usually is after the the early morning cutoff. So you get it the next day. Um, and so, you know, you constantly have this thing where, of course, why wouldn't I pick? to get it a day earlier for the same free price. 
uh, a new thing I just saw this week on on my own Amazon experience in Chicago is they're launching some new service called Amazon Weekly Delivery, and it seems like they're trying to incentivize me to bundle more of my purchases and have them delivered one day a week instead of on an ad hoc basis. And so it almost feels like Prime Pantry for uh, non-Prime prime Pantry items. So I, I have to dive into that and uh, get a little more details, but that was a new GUI I had never seen before. What's the incentive? Do you know? Yeah, so it, it that was part of the problem. It did not, like, it was a new button I could put to put it on my weekly delivery, which, to my knowledge, I didn't have a weekly delivery. Um, but it did not seem like there was any monetary benefit to do that. So it was, again, it was weird. It was like... Uh, Free same-day delivery, get it on Monday. Standard two-day delivery, get it on Tuesday. Or put it in your weekly delivery on Wednesday. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, they will they're, – they're always playing around with incentives for slow shipping. So I've noticed now um, they seem to have detected I'm a pretty heavy Prime Now user. So they're offering me kind of somewhere between 5 and $10 for slow shipping if I'll do – uh, in a Prime Now single-use coupon. Uh, I've had Audible coupons, Whole Foods. Um, you know, variety of different, you know, a free song, a free app, uh, you know, they've, they've played around with like a thousand different things on that side. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I agree with you. I think they, they seem pretty smart about seeing which offers you're most likely to accept and then turning up the volume on those offers. Um, I do a lot of audible and I keep getting more and more audible offers on, uh, or better offers on that regard. So, um, Definitely get that. Uh, you linked to an article this morning about Amazon's new Air Hub uh, in the Fort Worth airport. So they, they uh, as listeners will probably already know, they have a big Air Hub in Cincinnati. Now they're adding a second big hub in Dallas. Uh, and again, you know, these guys are getting more airport capacity and more planes, and and uh, it just seems totally obvious that they're they're bulking up their their internal delivery capacity and you know it, it's it's hard to imagine it's not a competitive threat to our friends at ups yeah they um amazon names their fulfillment centers after the airports so uh it, you know for a long time there i was tracking this and phoenix um had the most so they would do like phx and then when they opened the second one, they rebrand the first one to one and then they start enumerating. So uh, Phoenix had like PHX one, two, three, and four. Uh, and then Dallas for a long time, they didn't have anything there. And then suddenly, you know, within a span of like four or five years, they have all the way from DFW one through six. Uh, and then, you know, and then they expanded out the rest of them. They have a Houston and et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge state for Amazon. So I imagine, uh, you know, that that's going to be a, a busy hub. Uh, and then it's interesting because they, uh, I've seen diagrams where they kind of have a hub of hubs. So they, they're, they're kind of building the supply chain that looks, it's kind of a hybrid of kind of like what Walmart, Walmart does to get stuff to a store and what FedEx and UPS do. So they have this kind of benefit of product near you. And then if it errors out, then it goes to this other level and another level there. It's really fascinating how they're, they're kind of have layered two supply chain elements on top of each other. Uh, maybe we'll do a show where we get a supply chain guru in to explain that probably better than I just did. Yeah. And I, I would add just one thing, like th these are not just hubs where they're like shipping goods to then drive them to your house. This is mostly about moving goods around between the various fulfillment centers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and 
they're they're just getting crazy advanced. Like I literally think we have a pop up fulfillment center in Chicago right now. So it, it appears Amazon has rented uh, all the parking under Millennial Park, and they've like literally staged a temporary fulfillment center in downtown Chicago for holiday. Very cool. Uh, lots of machine learning, lots of data. Exactly. Long-time listeners uh, will enjoy this article because it's pretty much a topic we've spent a lot of time on. I, I didn't think there was much new in there, but it was kind of interesting to see it hit the mainline press. So it was in the Wall Street Journal. It, it is pay-gated or pay-walled, um, and it really talks about, introduces the concept of crap, uh, can't realize a profit, uh, and that you know it makes it sound like news that Amazon is pushing back on manufacturers to, to change their packaging and figure out how you solve this problem of, you know, that these items that are too bulky, too heavy, too low ASP to, to make money. Um, it was a good read, good summary of, of kind of what Amazon's doing, but, you know, kind of made it feel new. And, and we know that they've been doing this for years. Yeah. I, if anything, I'd almost argue that there's a slight trend the other way that, that I feel like Amazon's been progressively getting more and more aggressive about um, targeting crap. And that more recently, like in the last few months, it feels like they they may have loosened things slightly in some categories. Yeah, yeah, and then there was um, a smattering of uh, Amazon Go. You you touched on it in your your trip reports, but what are yeah. you hearing about Amazon Go? Yeah, so there there's some uh, rumors um, that one of the use cases for Amazon Go could be el- uh, airports, and that is one of the categories where it seems like you could. Uh, Amazon Go would be a really good fit. So like really fast grab and go self-service experience in an airport. And as we've talked about, like a lot of the Go merchandise is food. And so you think about, man, what happens a lot at airports? You have a limited time to get something to eat before you get on the plane. And you know you're not going to get served anything to eat on the plane now. And so it just seems for a lot of reasons uh, the Amazon Go's strengths align really well with that airport use case. So uh, that that made a lot of sense. Um, I won't be surprised to see that deploy and deploy fast. Um, they also opened their first small format Amazon Go store. So this is like a 100-square-foot store, um, and it's kind of like a self-contained shop-and-shop um, where you know you can have a bunch of quick-grab convenience items um, in a you know kind of self-contained pop-up store format. Uh, and, you know, from the first time I saw Go, one of the use cases I always thought of was like the hotel gift shop or the hotel snack shop um, kind of thing where it doesn't make sense to staff the store with a, a person, but, you know, you can sell a lot of snacks to to guests that just check in and are going up to the room. And so this, this small format store seems like a perfect fit for a potential um, hotel use case, for example. Uh yeah, and then I think uh, Go is now going to the UK. So we've seen like three new new retail uh, formats from Amazon open up in in London in recent times, and now they're going to get their first Go store. Cool. It's um, everyone laughed when they said there there could be thousands of these. So you put ten in each airport and fifty in each city, and boom, you're there. Exactly. So yeah, they uh, they are not sitting still. They're doing a lot of interesting stuff. It's been fun to follow them. Awesome. So I know we're up against time, but there is uh, that concludes our Amazon news. There was one big news item that I wanted to pick your brain on, and um, it was interesting. I, this kind of slid under my radar. I'm sure you were really 
you're really tracking it, but uh, there was this announcement that IBM sold a bunch of software stuff to uh, this company called HCL. I don't even know who that is. Um, and the ones that made the headlines I saw were, uh, let's see, Lotus Notes and just some kind of some old stuff that, that seemed not important. Um, then I saw kind of a kerfuffle on LinkedIn where uh, several of the smaller e-commerce platforms were were really kind of riling up retailers and saying, you know, what are you going to do now that IBM no longer supports WebSphere, uh, which is their their kind of you know their e-commerce platform that a lot of the largest retailers are on, uh, and you know, turns out that they have sold that whole platform to this company HCL. What uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there. Um, I'm sure if they're on the web sphere, they're, they're painfully aware of this, but I was a little shocked uh, about that. Um, you know, what do you, what do you make of it? Does this mean IBM just is getting out of the retail game or, uh, you know, why would they sell it? And then what do you think it means going forward? Yeah. It's even potentially more confusing than that. So it totally caught me out of left field. Um, the, you know, if you look at the last call it five to eight years in retail, um, there have been these three enterprise platforms that have emerged as sort of the the most competitive um, platforms for launching your e-commerce site. So, um, you know, IBM has had WebSphere Commerce, which is the one of the products they sold to HCL. Um, uh, Oracle has had a product called ATG. It was originally a standalone company, Oracle Bottom. Uh, there was originally a German standalone company called Hybris that SAP bought. And so, you know, if you were a big retailer, or you wanted to, you know, be selling hundreds of millions of dollars online, um, you likely were going to pick one of these three platforms to launch your website. And and you would likely have a shootout between two or three of them and, you know, uh, pay a company like Razorfish millions of dollars to to implement it for you and and pay the vendor, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year in maintenance on that platform. Um, and so in some ways, like totally shocking, IBM, which, you know, arguably had the biggest retail market share of those three platforms, sold the entire WebSphere business to HCL. HCL is a very large integrator. And so, you know, frankly, from my standpoint, um, whatever traction IBM had in the marketplace, that that platform is totally going to lose now that a single integrator owns it because, you know, all the other integrators in the world are not very likely in uh, to be promoting and implementing a platform that's owned by one of their competitors. Um, so, you know, usually when an integrator buys a platform, it's kind of the end of life of that platform and it just becomes a, an in-house piece of IP that that, that integrator uses. Um, you know, it becomes much harder to see other third parties uh, integrate this. And, and IBM had this rich ecosystem of integrators that were aggressively selling their stuff. So there's a ton of customers that are on it. It's But here's what's super fragmented about this. Um, they sold the on-prem version of the software to HCL. At the moment, IBM still owns the cloud version of the software, which is the newest version. But the cloud version is based on the on-prem code base. So if you're one of the few customers that bought the cloud version of IBM or you were thinking about migrating, now you have to ask yourself, is HCL going to keep updating that code base so that IBM's cloud version continues to stay competitive or contemporary or what's going to happen there? Um, IBM owns a bunch of other retail software that a lot of retailers still rely on. Most famously, they own an order management system called Sterling, 
um, that's still doing really well, and they did not sell, sell Sterling. So in the old days, you know, IBM had a lot of success getting people to use their OMS and their web platform together because obviously most most businesses need order management and uh, an e-commerce site. Now those things are getting split up. So at the moment, there's a lot more questions than answers. Uh, I've probably already taken too much time, but the one thing I will say is, in my mind, all of these enterprise platforms are losing momentum and losing customers. And so, you know, the likely reason IBM selling it is they just feel like the super expensive enterprise software is kind of end of life. Because uh, to me, what's happening is the very largest e-commerce sites are are all largely on custom in-house built stuff. Um, and increasingly, the biggest customers that were on these enterprise platforms are writing more of the software themselves and using less of the enterprise platform and negotiating to pay less uh, licenses for that software. Everyone wants to move to the cloud, and none of these products are particularly graceful at offering a cloud version. Um, And then every new business that's been born, every new brand that's been born in the last eight years that was more likely to be digital native probably started doing e-commerce on something like Shopify or Big Commerce. And they're actually finding that those those platforms continue to meet all their needs, even as they scale. And so, you know, even if you outgrow Shopify, once you're used to paying $10,000 a year for your e-commerce platform, you know, it becomes really hard to pay for a, a you know, uh, orders of magnitude more for that, you know, and then orders of magnitude more on top of that to implement it. It just became a, a tough value prop for these old enterprise platforms. So. A lot of us in the e-commerce software space have a lot of nostalgia for IBM. You know, they were definitely king of the hill in retail for a long time. But, you know, IBM's probably selling them because, you know, it, it was becoming a, a financial loser for them. And, and you know, it does not seem like that's where the growth is going to be in retail. Feels like financial kind of, you know, shell games, though, to, you know, that may be a, a negative phrase, but so, you know, IBM is wanting to show Wall Street more SaaS revenue. So that's probably why they kept that piece. But, you know, it can't possibly do well if you're not controlling the underlying code. And if I'm an integrator, I don't want to make the SaaS version better. So it seems like there's instant misalignment there that, that can't possibly work out well. <laughs> no, I think there's multiple layers of misalignment now. And to your point, like, you know, if you had a long in the tooth version of IBM and you were debating whether you should upgrade to the latest version or go to the cloud version, you know, I can guarantee you the day after this announcement, you added some new players to your consideration set. Who wins from this? Well, yeah. So in the in the short run, um, on the the low end, you know, I, I think those those smaller platforms are are winning a bigger share of uh the e-commerce dollar. So I think those guys, the Shopify's and big commerces continue to, to, to kind of eat away from the bottom. And at the top, again, you have more people building this stuff. And so there are all these tools out there to help those companies build their own things. There are all these uh, toolkits of microservices that you can buy to expedite your own development. Um, and that's a really fragmented space right now. I can't point to one and say, Oh my gosh, Commerce Tools is the one or Symphony Commerce is the one or, you know, there are a lot of these players. Um, but it seems like ultimately uh, that that kind of native cloud based microservice uh, toolkit for retailers that want to build a little bit more of their own custom platform 
um, uh, at a at a more economical price point is likely the way that this is going. Uh, if if only people had a chief commerce strategy officer they could call. Too bad no one has earned that title yet. Oh yeah. wait, yeah, I heard those guys. There are is already. only one. There is one. Few and far between. <laughs> that, Scott, that's slightly more than a good place to end it. We should have ended it about 30 seconds ago, um, but we've completely uh, overused our allotted time. So I apologize to listeners for the extra long episode, but hopefully people found it valuable and it's a great way to to kick you into holiday season. So um, as always, if you had any questions or comments, feel free to jump on Facebook and leave us a note. Uh if you struggled through this entire episode, we'd love it if you jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. Um, and, uh, man, I sure would like to thank all the listeners for, for uh, a great year and wish everyone a happy holidays. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Happy holidays. We will be back in 2019 uh, with a lot of fresh content for you, and we really appreciate you listening to the show and leaving us those reviews. Thanks. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.